Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week's a little different. Normally, we have chefs, restaurant owners, sommeliers on the podcast. But this week, I'm actually joined by a chocolatier. Her name is Carolina Quiano, and she's the owner and founder and also the main head chocolatier at Exquisito Chocolates down in Miami, Florida. They're actually in the Little Havana neighborhood of Miami. They have a retail shop up front, and then they do tours. At least they did when COVID wasn't a thing, and they'll eventually get back to it. They do tours of their kind of production facility. So it's really cool. I mean, you can check them out online. They got a website, Exquisito Chocolates. Follow them on Instagram too as well, Exquisito Chocolates there. I first learned about them. I went down a weird rabbit hole, being a bar chocolate, dandelion chocolate out in California, and was ordering stuff from there, from Exquisite though, from places up in Canada that were award-winning places too as well. And it was part of the pandemic. You know, we all kind of got into either wine or uh, champagne or beer. A lot of people did bread making. I started ordering food. Uh, which was pretty much my pandemic, ordering food and drinking lots of wine and champagne when we were in the lockdown stages. That's how I kind of first learned about her. There's also an Eater video on their YouTube channel. It shows her producing all the chocolate and how they go about it and the process and everything. So check that out. I think it's like 10, 15 minutes, probably about a year or so ago that that came out. So if you go through the YouTube or if you Google it, it should pull you kind of right to it. So check that out. It's definitely super interesting. You know, we kind of cover her entire career. You know, she's from Columbia originally, Born and raised a little bit there, kind of moved to Miami and moved out west to California for a bit. Eventually went to college in Miami, started working as a consultant out of New York post-college. And basically, she was traveling around for this company she was working at and just kind of fell in love with chocolate. Started making it out of her apartment, messing with different recipes and stuff like that. And eventually, it turned into this business. She opened a facility down in Miami, and it's kind of been a whirlwind ever since. And They do different items. You know, it's not just chocolate bars. They do bonbons. They do chocolate-covered nuts, a whole bunch of stuff. So check out their website. They got a bunch of stuff up there. Basically, she wound up building this business, and they do gift baskets for, like, really big, ritzy hotels and stuff. And you can find her products around Miami and stuff, and they do a bunch of shipping. Won a bunch of awards for it. They're actually going to be in New York for this market thing, this like kind of holiday market that they do in New York City. So they're going to be there. She kind of gets into that and and her relationship with all that too as well. So super interesting. It's an awesome conversation. It's a little bit different, kind of still in the similar format, but just a little bit different aspect of kind of the food industry and everything. So I can't recommend their stuff enough. I've had it. I love it. I mean, probably my favorites are either there's like a cookies and dream one that she does. And then there's also a like white chocolate one. Those are, I would highly recommend, you know, they do everything from different percentages. So there's 35% all the way up to like 70 some percent they were doing. At one point they had like the hundred percent, which is like super bitter. That's not for me. I'm more in kind of the 35 to 60 range is kind of the 35 to like 62, but they get into the seventies, I think like 73% and even in the eighties, 85, 86, somewhere in there. And there was like a 90 or 92. So we've had a bunch of their stuff. They're always coming out with new stuff because sourcing cacao is much like almost everything else, you know, any kind of high quality product where there's limited amounts of it. So a bunch of people kind of fighting over bidding for it and stuff too. But also some years they just don't have enough or some years it just doesn't grow. So maybe you won't have certain cacao that you like to use every year. It might be every other year thing. It just kind of depends on the weather and seasonality, hurricanes, you know, if they blow through and destroy some of the crop, stuff like that. So I can't recommend it enough if you're, if you're, you know, into chocolate. My favorites are, like I said, the Cookies and Dream and also probably the white chocolate, but they do everything ranging from 35% all the way up to 100 So you just have to kind of constantly check the website to see what they have in stock. Without further delay, this is my conversation with the owner and head chocolatier of Exquisito Chocolates, Carolina Quijano, down in Miami, Florida. 
Thanks again for coming on. You are the first chocolatier that we've had on the podcast. So I'm super excited just to kind of get people to listen to this and going to be a little bit different than some of our other episodes with chefs and sommeliers. I first found out about you and everything that you're doing. It was during COVID. I started on just kind of this bean to bar lane of dandelion chocolate. And there's places in Canada and stuff and we would get them shipped to the house here. And I was just going through like a chocolate bar phase. Ordered a bunch of stuff from you guys. And I think probably still my favorite is either the the cookies and dream or the white chocolate one is one of those two. I could eat like three of those in a row if I have them laying around. And you guys are constantly coming out with different bars and sourcing from different places. And it's all really like well done and and really flavorful and, and awesome to just taste different notes, different fruits and nuts. And I want to get to all that stuff too, but I like to start with everybody at kind of the beginning. I mean, I know some of your story, you know, you were first born in Miami, but grew up in Columbia, right? First off, thanks for having me. You know, really appreciate the the chat and the invite. But yeah, I'm I'm not from anywhere is what I would tell people because I grew up all over the place. I was born in Miami, but I didn't return to Miami until I was an adult. And I I grew up in, in Columbia on the coast up until I was uh, around 12. In between and after, have lived in California. I've lived in Arizona. I lived in Orlando for a while. And I came back to Miami for uh, undergrad and then left to New York <laughs> to work and to go to grad school and wound up uh, back in Miami, you know, my 30s to open this up. So I'm uh, I don't have I can't really I don't have a street address I grew up on or or anything like that. And um, but I've kind of taken a little piece of everything that I've experienced and kind of helped in my formation. So I'm from a little bit all over. I didn't know you moved around to some of those places. What was the reason? Was it just your parents and, and job? Yeah, it was parents. Parents worked in uh, civil engineering, building like light rails. And a lot of times you, you start up on those projects and prior to them even breaking ground. And if they don't get approved, like we had a case in Orlando where they never approved the train and it was like, all right, time to pack up and leave. So uh, it was all, or then, you know, once it gets built out, then that's it. And there's no more need for the job uh, to be there. So it was a lot of that. When you were living in Colombia, it was Barranquilla, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, Barranquilla. It's on the coast, and uh, it is the birthplace of Shakira, who put us on the map. So that's your our biggest claim to fame. During like the late '80s, early '90s, I mean, you guys are pretty far away from like Bogota, Medellin, and anything. Did any of that stuff with like Escobar and everything like overlap, or were you guys kind of off in your own? It's it was a little different just because of geographically like where it's located. So the vibe was a little bit different and how it affected was a bit different. There were moments when it was something that could, you know, be an issue, but, uh, and then also in terms of like just traveling to certain places around there could be an issue, Uh, but not in the city itself. Obviously everyone knew people that were affected by it. Um, A lot of my family is from Medellin. So we're pretty much the only ones who lived on the coast and everybody else was on the inside of the country. Yeah, I mean, not so much on a direct level like it was in other cities. What was it like growing up on the coast of the Caribbean? Colombia is really interesting. We rewatched one of the Anthony Bourdain episodes not too long ago. It has all the different kind of climates. Like you have the oceanfront climate, the mountains and the altitude. You have the jungle. Was it kind of surreal just growing up on like the Caribbean? 
Yeah. So it's funny because, as you mentioned, it's one of the most diverse uh, microclimate, you know, countries with most microclimates in like the world. You have a little bit of everything. You have, you know, the, the Caribbean, you have temperate, you have mountains, you have everything in between. So it's very diverse. And it also creates a lot of diversity culturally, despite being within the same country, you know, in terms of ethnicities and, and races. And it's a very diverse country. So yeah, in the Caribbean, uh, culturally, it's a little bit more like the, the Caribbean culture, than sometimes more of like the, the culture of the interior of the country. Uh, even in the way we speak, in, in what we eat, in, in just overall how we are. I grew up going uh, a lot to Cartagena, which is, uh, you know, big, I guess, tourist uh, beach town. Lots of remnants of architecture from, you know, colonial times, very old city. So, yeah, it's a beautiful, very hot very sticky place, but, you know, really, really great. Like I said, very diverse. It, it has a big Middle Eastern uh, immigrant population that other people don't realize, but there's a huge diversity of, of people because it is a port city. It was one of the first and one at one point in time, one of the most important ports in Latin America because of the geographic position of it. Things came through there first, not only in terms of like goods, but also in terms of like a lot of people came through there too. And it just added a very lovely mix of diverse folks from from different parts of the world. So you get a melting pot in a city you wouldn't expect. It's great. When you were living in Colombia before you guys first moved, did you ever get to go to the, I think it's the annual carnival in Barranquilla? Is that like our Mardi Gras? It is. It's funny because I never, it's not one of those things you necessarily take kids because it's a lot of hoopla. And it's, it's a lot of like, people don't realize if you don't live in, in that part of the country, like the city basically shuts down for like a good week where it's like, we're just going to party for like a week. So the thing is, if you live there, I don't know how it, how it is for people in, in New Orleans, but if you live there, it's kind of like, okay, we're leaving the city for a week because it becomes, I mean, it, the influx of people from all over becomes a little overwhelming and it just becomes a little too much. So when I was a kid, um, we would actually, it was the time to, to get away from the city and, and take a week off. Of course, you would have vacation because, of course, you would have vacation during carnival season uh, as a kid. But I actually enjoyed it coming back as an adult. So I was able to go a few times once I was older and go with my friends and everything. And it's definitely like everyone always thinks of carnival like in Brazil. But the, the carnival in, in Barranquilla, it's very folkloric. It's definitely something worth experiencing. It's beautiful. It's like never ending. Every day is like a new theme, you know, of dance, of outfits, of, of everything. And it, it's very musical and very folkloric. So it's a beautiful experience for sure. How did you wind up settling on the University of Miami? So I had been to Miami throughout my childhood and then, you know, through coming in uh, older and uh, I like the the vibe of the city. For Latin immigrants, it's one of the biggest pockets, very diverse, one of the first landing spots that a lot of Latin American families come through because of the geography, because of the language, because of the familiarity. So it was something that I really loved how how diverse it was. And when when I went to apply to, to colleges, it was one of my, my top choices. And they actually, um, I got a scholarship to go. So it was like made all the sense in the world to come over here. Now you were there like early 2000s or so, somewhere in there, probably, right? Yeah, uh, 2003 to 2000. Yeah, I graduated in 2007. 
during that time, like I think that was kind of probably the end of them being like this big football program and party school. Was it still like that, though, when you were there? Yeah, the the football program, the legacy continued, but uh, I do recall that it was on on the opposite spectrum of that. Um, I think they had also invested a lot of by that point into trying to become more of like a an academically focused like institution, and you know trying to to be um, more of uh, growing out that part of it, not just being the the old suntan youth that they were in the the nineties. <laughs> How did the management job in New York City come about? So obviously you, you go through college, you graduated. Did you get linked up through an advisor? Was it like it started off an internship? How'd you wind up there? I after graduated from, from college here, I uh, I worked in, in HR beforehand. I actually in, was trying to go for my PhD. I wanted to do my PhD in, in organizational psychology. I was very set on that. So I I was took a year rather than go straight into it from undergrad. I decided to to work to kind of get some hands-on experience. And I knew that was going to be like a seven plus year journey. And so initially I was supposed to go that route, ended up deciding to go actually for, for my master's in New York and in organizational psychology and try to do more of like a practitioner model. So uh, while I was, I went to grad school in 08, which as you know, was a rough time. Jobs were quite scarce. You know, we had people in the program that they had job offers from the year prior and they were being pulled. So it was it was a bit of a scary time. Consulting was sort of the top choice for that type of program and what they were setting up in terms of your education and your your practical experience within it. So I was a, I was able to, you know, we had a few folks in the program who were already working in consulting at the firm that I was at. I went through their rigorous interview process and uh, I actually started off first uh, interning with them during grad school. And then once I graduated, I, I went on uh, full time with them. Like I said, it was a really rough time where it was they made you very much aware of how lucky you were to be employed. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And they had you traveling around to a bunch of places, right? Because I think the story goes that it was like 2011, you wind up on like a business trip to Paris. And that was kind of your first experience with really, really good chocolate. Yeah, I used to travel, like we discussed, the the shared uh, small town experience everywhere from, you know, middle of Ohio to small town Texas, uh, where massive companies that you'd never expect exist in, you know, not too far away from from the uh, cow ranches. One of the things that was a big advantage for me being fully bilingual, it, it was something that not a lot of people had at, at the company. And so it set me apart into being able to help out with Latin American clients. And I was able to go everywhere from Uruguay to Spain to pretty much a, a lot through Latin America as a result of that. On one of the trips, they had uh, sent me to visit clients in Spain and then in the UK. And I was on maybe like a four or five month living out of a suitcase, just rolling into different time zones situation. And I decided I needed just a weekend. Uh, so I took just a train out to, you know, to Paris and just to kind of de-stress and was walking through the city. And I just stumbled onto this like nondescript little farmer's market, just, you know, a, a weekend thing of artisans and bakers and things like that. And I came upon a little stand that was selling hot chocolate and no name, nothing fancy. But what struck me, I was like instantly enamored by this hot chocolate, which was very simply made. 
But what struck me as amazing was its simplicity was so fantastic. And that was due to the fact of it being made with real ingredients and like real chocolate versus kind of like the cocoa stuff that maybe we, we consume on a regular basis over here. Although we don't drink hot chocolate in, in Barranquilla with the hot weather, it reminded me a lot of hot chocolate, like Colombian hot chocolate, of it being really about the chocolate as like a vehicle for the beverage. And I was just absolutely like transfixed on this idea of how great it was and how much I wanted to never having thought I would go into the food business of just really wanting to replicate that and bring something like that over here in the States. That was like the the defining moment. And after that, I was obsessed, uh, you know, on the, on the plane ride back, just jotting down everything I could. And it just kind of initiated everything for me. You spent a couple of years trying to like recreate it, right? Yeah, a lot of folks don't realize chocolate is a very complicated ingredient to work with. You know, I've always said that the the path to making great chocolate starts with making a lot of shitty chocolate at first. And there was a lot of that. It, it wasn't as simple as like, oh, yeah, I'll just melt some chocolate and just put it into something. And then it just sets and it's cool. There's a lot of science and a lot of chemistry behind it and before it actually works. So, yeah, I used to I tinkered around uh, with it for, for a while when I'd come back from work, purchased the pretty much every chocolate bar brand that I could to start tasting things and seeing different things. And I had a little chocolate melter from Michael's that that you just plug into the wall and it melts the chocolate for you. And that was like where it started. That lasted with me up until opening up here until I burned a hole through it at an event. Uh, but it actually uh, went quite far in its uses. But that, that was, it was just like tinkering around. And what happens if I add this? What happens if I you know, modify this? So it was like going through grad school again, but very humbling because it was quite difficult to, to learn. It's way more difficult of an ingredient to work with than I thought at time. Now you're doing all this in your one bedroom studio apartment in New York. Studio, yeah. In the dining slash living room slash bedroom. Or were you just like going to work and then basically whenever you had some free time, you're messing around with chocolate and trying to figure out what is this? What's this taste like? How do I reconstruct this? All that stuff. Well, I was still traveling quite a bit. So it was a combo of like, I've always been very analytical in nature. And so reading as much as I could about the science of it and just like the processing and manufacturing, like that was something that was like a part of that educational period of just trying to get my hands on as much knowledge that I could. And then also either on the weekends when I was back in my place or during the weekdays that I was there, just afterwards staying up late and then just using my little mini melt to combine a bunch of things, realizing you can't just throw alcohol into chocolate because it becomes like cement and basically just ruining a lot of chocolate in the process until I figured out what worked and what didn't. What eventually gave you the courage to quit your job and move back to Miami? So the plan was never to quit my job, (laughs) to be honest. In true Colombian fashion, I was looking at this to be more of a side hustle. And I was trying to find initially why I ended up the way the business is at is because when I started with this idea and I got the the uh, recipe down to what I wanted to make in terms of hot chocolate, I said, okay, great. I'm going to go find a co-packer. I'm going to co-packer. What they do is that a lot of 
products, let's say instead of you building out your manufacturing, you go to somebody who already has a manufacturing place and let's say they make chocolate bars or something like that. You say, hey, I want to build this product. Can you help me like make it? Here's the recipe. Like these are the ingredients I want, all this stuff. So I started going down that path, going to conventions, to conferences, to to find uh, co-packers and exploring those relationships with a few of them. And what I kept hitting a wall on and not being able to do it was that the quality of the chocolate that they were using and that, you know, these are your two options. You want dark and you want milk. This is what we're going to use. And this is what you have to to use. We'll integrate your recipe into it. it was very waxy. It was very like oily, like not, not chocolate. It was kind of like your subpar chocolate. And so I was like, well, this, you know, again, the experience that I had was all about the chocolate. Like that's what made it the star of the product. So it has to be fantastic chocolate. And then, you know, integrating like the recipe that I wanted, but that, that was like a key ingredient. If we had really bad chocolate, then the product was going to be, was not going to be good. So once I hit that wall, I was like, well, I think that the only way that I can do this is if I actually go into manufacturing on my own, naively thinking uh, <laughs> that this is going to be easy. And, and, you know, again, like when you're especially younger, uh, you're like, it's going to be an easy transition. And when you're an analytical and you're, you're a consultant, you're like, well, these are the steps I have to do. And then it just naturally is just going to fall. In in New York, there's a, a holiday market. They do like a European style holiday market in all the parks. And I was like, all right, genius idea. I'm going to apply. They start in November. So I'll just have to quit like around October 31st. And then by the time that, you know, I'll give myself two weeks, I can master this, I can produce it. And then, you know, I'll just seamlessly transition into this new life. Well, things did not go that way. I actually didn't get accepted to the holiday market, which was probably like the, it seemed like the biggest disappointment at the time, but it's the biggest blessing because I, knowing what I know now, it would have been a tremendous disaster. I started to save up. I started to put money aside, trying to start to look a little bit more into like what it was going to require to get this off the ground. New York didn't seem like a, a feasible financial place to be jobless and starting a chocolate emporium when you are uh, with the background that I have. So New York has always been in the in the rearview mirror as a, a place I, I absolutely love. You know, from everywhere I've lived, Miami, New York always feels like home. Miami, I had family here and seemed like something that I could I could start up in, in a more economical way and take advantage of the diversity that's here and the growing food scene um, that's happening here. So at some point I said, you know, it's a lot easier to do this, to leave behind when it's just me and me taking care of myself versus later on in life uh, that it's a little harder to take those risks when you have a mortgage, you have kids, you have everything. So it was one of those things where I said, okay, I can do this. I'll give it two years to see if I could produce it, if I could grow it, if people even want to buy it. And then if it doesn't work out, then I'll just go back to doing what I know how to do. And And if it does work, then fantastic. And so that will be a great thing that so really it wasn't as simple as like okay I'm just gonna quit my job it was a lot of like you know a lot of roadblocks and then realizing you know it wasn't how I wanted it to be but eventually it kind of landed me at at the place that that I'm at how long did it take to find like a suitable spot to set up your operation it took a while once I moved back I had a a bit of a roadblock because I had a, a sibling who got sick and so that kind of took over from what I was initially uh, doing and kind of had to tend to that. But 
it was about another uh, year before I was able to formally set up. And I, I got in, in true consulting fashion, just tried to uh, find what made the most sense financially. I found this tiny little warehouse that I converted um, into like a commercial kitchen with like just the basics that I needed to, to function by code and everything. And it was this tiny little space. It was like an office and we were making chocolate out of there until it got to the point where uh, I had sheet pans over my head and it, it became uh, a little too tight in there. Uh, for, for chocolate manufacturing, you, you need so much space because cacao takes up so much space. It's, it's a volume product. Eventually, I outgrew that through wholesale and um, started to, to contemplate, you know, building out a, a production facility, but that also had a retail component to it. And that's how I landed at the, the space that I'm at, which was a year after that. It was... Uh, an interesting journey. It's not like having an office where it's the aesthetics and things like that. It's it's a whole nother world in terms of building out a production facility for food and, and all that stuff. So it's been a learning experience to say the least. And it's been a, an interesting uh, little path. How did you settle on the name? So uh, it, it's interesting because I wanted something that reflected my heritage, something that was very much Latin, especially because of where the cacao was coming from, but also because of my own heritage. So in Spanish, exquisito doesn't, it's not like exquisite. Exquisito is like the highest compliment that if you're eating something and someone says that, that is like, like the Mecca of like compliments. I, I don't even think there's an equivalent to it in English, but it is like the word I, I think that most captures that something is amazing. That's where the idea for that came into integrating like something I thought was just, you know, really good, but also that that reflected, you know, my own cultural uh, history and, and background. How did all like the cacao sourcing partnerships come together? So you realized that co-packing is not the way to go. You got to do it yourself. How did you start finding like these different farmers? Did you do a bunch of research online? Did you just physically kind of explore the country? How did all that kind of come together? Yeah, so it's funny because it's it's evolved since I've been in business. I remember when I first started, it was really difficult to find folks because uh, a lot of times people are not maybe connected in traditional ways of like websites and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. And so it was it was a little bit of a trek at first in terms of finding people online and just reaching out. So for maybe you know every ten that that I was able to to email out and be like, hey, let me buy some cocoa to see if I'm interested or not, you know, get maybe, maybe one back because it, it just, the infrastructure was not there. Since then it's changed. Being in Miami, it's a very, it's been an interesting, because of, of where we are geographically, we get people constantly who show up at our door with cocoa samples. Like I cannot tell you, uh, people who are on vacation, who they themselves grow cocoa in Latin America, or that they have a cousin who has a brother who has a friend I'm, I'm telling you, the amount of cocoa I've had dropped off here, it's, it's, it's fantastic, you know, and people will tell you the, the story of it and, and, and things like that. So it's been a mix. Now, you know, in the last few years, even through like people have gotten very savvy with social media, where people have found us through Instagram being like, hey, 
are you interested in, in trying out or, or kick out? So, and being someone who's, who's bilingual has helped a lot because sometimes, you know, it's just a, a Spanish conversation, but it's been a mix of, there's some great folks in the industry. Most people don't realize majority of cocoa or chocolate wheat comes from cocoa that's uh, traded on the stock market. It's, it's a commodity. That's kind of like the bulk of it. There's a few players in the market that are doing some great work. Like there's a uncommon cacao as an example. They're a fantastic company. And what they do is that they basically will seek out different cocoa farms or co-ops or, or families or what have you that have cocoa. And they vet it in terms of quality, in terms of sustainability, in terms of making sure that it follows all the guidelines of, you know, what we do, but also what other chocolate makers do. And since we are not Hershey's and we don't buy uh, containers upon containers of origins, what they've been able to set up is a system where they'll pull together, you know, let's say 50 chocolate makers. And then for the year, they know we're going to buy X amount of cocoa. And so they're able to help us with the logistics of bringing it over to the States and also connecting us to different origins that uh, are really fantastic. So that's uh, one example of ways that we've been able to find people. Others have been just literally dropping on, on our, our doorstep here with the Latin American connection. And then other times it's, I think, with the advent of social media just being everywhere a lot of connections through that it's it's interesting um in a few of the origins that i've been at there's no electricity and there's no wi-fi but yet everybody has this and it's always fascinating i'm like there's no electricity and then suddenly i'm like i turn around and i just see like a phone coming at me and then the next night i'm on somebody's instagram with one of the farmers like instagram so i think what's cool is that even in with the evolution of technology and the access of technology, even in remote locations, this has been a huge aid in becoming more connected. Um, and not only that, where at the beginning it was very scarce. Now, you know, I communicate through WhatsApp with with some of our origin farmers and, you know, they either update me on what's going on or they have something new or, you know, what have you. So that has been a great tool to find people, to continue in contact with people that we work with and, and overall, um, you know, connecting. So I like to go out before we start working. The, the path is there's a lot of cocoa that gets dropped off. 90% of it is not great. It's not up to like the standards that we have. And then once it kind of passes, I guess what you call the smell test, we'll test it out in one of our mini machines to see how it tastes. If it's you know something we like, if it's unique, if it's different than maybe something we have. And then once it gets up to that level, you know, I, I like to go out, take a go see, go learn more about the origin, about what they're doing, their process, um, also vet to make sure that it abides by our standards, which, you know, in terms of who's working on there, you know, how they have it set up, we, we don't want to support anything that follows the unfortunate tradition of the cocoa industry over the last hundred plus years. So that's usually like the journey. And once that happens, for me, it's I want to create long term relationships with them where it's not just a one time purchase, but we're continuing to build on. And unless they stop producing cocoa, we want to continue buying from them. Uh, in the long term. So it's one of those things that once we vet and we were cool with one of the new farms, um, we want to keep working with them, you know, as far as much as we're in existence. So you basically still physically visit each farm that you guys work with. When you first start out, that's probably the only way that you were able to make the connections. But now it's like, 
well, I still want to do that because I need to verify that this fits within what we're doing. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's been unfortunate because of, of COVID. Obviously, that stopped. So I haven't been able to do any visits and I'm not really sure when those will restart, unfortunately. So I, I try to stay as connected as I can through WhatsApp with the folks we're working with currently. But COVID, I mean, with a lot of regards, but in terms of this has, has thrown a wrench in terms of being able to go out to, to farm visits. Uh, but yeah, I, I do like to, to go see. And, and what's interesting is there's so much science and so much methodical planning that happens on the farm level that I'm always fascinated that people are always like, well, what happens on the farm? I'm like, well, they ferment. But it's like everybody has their own little secret sauce. And it's kind of like, I don't know, like banana bread. Everybody has their own like recipe. But it's really interesting because no two farms do things. I mean, the process generally is the same, but they're like defined steps in doing it are so different that it's really cool to see not only are the flavors developing because of where it's coming from and everything, but also they're doing all this like different fermentation levels and drying levels and all these things that are contributing to it. And so on my level, not only is it from like a vetting standpoint, but also from learning more about what they do and trying to understand why the cocoa tastes the way it does. And then also having the knowledge to then pass it on to our customer base who wants to know, okay, what makes us unique and what makes us special? And I think that's part of what I try to bring back is the uniqueness of the origin to pass along the stories of, of what they tell me that they would like our customers to know, which I think is important. And I think the other piece that is, I didn't realize like how important it was, but also my cultural background is from a country that has a very strong reaction from people when you say, in terms of prejudice, when you say, oh, I'm Colombian, people always have something that comes to mind, right? And a lot of the places that we work with for the majority are countries that have similar stories in terms of people have preconceived notions on the negative side as to where they are are at. So part of what I like to also bring back is like the other side of it. And it's almost like, I feel like aside from bringing the origin of the chocolate, I feel like we are also able through those journeys to show people the other positive side of countries like this or areas like this that maybe they didn't realize Haiti is a beautiful country. Uh, you know, the the landscape, the the culture, the the people. And I think um, part of what I always feel, because I, from my own experience, um, knowing what the weight of being Colombian sometimes entails, is to bring a little piece of that through the journeys too, so that uh, it's almost like a little cultural offering that that people send over, you know, with us, which I think is is important to help push that along. For like Haiti, for instance, because you guys have different, even just sticking within the bar world, you guys have different bars from different parts of Haiti. The easiest way to compare it to is almost like the wine world, where it's like you might have one winery, but they have different vineyards and they break it out by vintage and stuff like that. You kind of do the same for chocolate. Right. I would say even our Colombian. So right now we bring three origins from Colombia, but there's two of them that come from the same region and they're vastly different flavors like we're, we're making one now that just came back uh the origin the sierra nevada that is you know very nutty and we have one that's grown in the same same driving distance from the aruacos and that one tastes like raisin part i always ask people i actually compare more to like apples because there's so many varieties of apples and you can always tell people like oh what's your favorite apple and people are like well i love fuji you know for this reason and i don't like green apples because they're too tart or what have you and 
and then on that same note, I asked you, well, what is, what does chocolate taste like? And most times people are like, well, chocolate just kind of tastes like chocolate. <laughs> That's it. Right. And people are like, well, like it can taste bitter or it can taste sweet. Like there's nothing else aside from like those flavor profiles for most people, because the majority of chocolate that we've grown up eating and that's on the market is all blended chocolate. So because most of the chocolate we eat is grown by smallholder farmers, even by the likes of big companies, in order to maintain consistency from one batch to the next, what big manufacturers have to do is that they kind of blend everything together. And much like in coffee, they tend to over roast it a little bit because that creates a lot of consistency. When you open up you know, a lint bar today versus six months, it should taste, you know, from one, one purchase to the next, it should always taste the same, right? So what we do is a little bit different. And I think what's been uh, coming along in the craft chocolate market has been more focused on uh, doing single origin batches. So meaning when we bring from Colombia from those two different regions, or those very close uh, geographic locations, we don't blend them. We are creating a batch just for the Aruacos and just for the Sierra Nevada. And in doing so and not over roasting it, you can actually taste how different it, it, it is, right? And we have people and, and that's kind of the beauty of it. It's kind of like the apples again, where it's like, oh, I love the aruacos. It's so delicious. Like, I love it. And then you have people who are like, oh my God, I hate, like, I don't enjoy the raisiny flavor of it. And that's fine. Like, that's that's part of the beauty. And then you go to the Sierra Nevada and then you have people like, oh, no, no, that person who loves Aruacos, I don't like the Sierra Nevada. Like, and, and vice versa. So it's, again, it's, you know, taste is subjective. But I think what's beautiful about doing the origins is that everyone has a favorite apple. We should all be able to pick what's our favorite chocolate. And I think that's what we try to do. And and then it's like, it's this aha moment for people are like, oh my God, like it's, it can be fruity and it could be, you know, more on the nutty side or more florally or pep, like the one from, from Mexico that we bring is very like peppery and it's almost like savory, the level of sweetness, just like with an apple's an apple, right? But there's some that are sweeter than others. And the same is we make 73% primarily, but they, the level of sweetness that you experience, despite them all having the same amount of sugar is different because of the flavor profile that's naturally in the cocoa. And so I almost feel like we're not really doing much to it. We're just trying to like honor what's going back to the soil, back from where we brought it and what the farmers are doing and just trying to highlight that, you know, with, with uh, not over-processing, not sticking vanilla or preservatives or anything, just keeping it as simple as possible and, and really trying to highlight where it's coming from, you know, everything that that went to make that go-go over the last few years. And I think that's the big difference and what makes it uh, such a unique experience. About how many different farms do you guys source beans from? Does it vary because of climate year to year where like maybe we can't really get anything from this farm for 2021? Yeah, it's, um, you know, chocolate's a fruit, which is what we've all we're waiting to hear, right? And it is seasonal. It's an agricultural product. In most cases, there's two seasons to, to cocoa. There's like a end of year, like the depending on the country too, but typically like a summer, like early summer, and then like a, towards the end of the year. And depending on where you're at, one's a longer season, one's a shorter season. In some places, it's very fruitful, meaning that uh, in some places I've heard in St. Lucia, it almost grows like year round. Like it's just never stops like at an abundant level. And then in some places it's, it's a harder thing to come by. So uh, we typically work at any given time, typically seven different co-ops and farms to kind of render variety. 
we have some, not only because of seasonality, but we have like our Peruvian, our Marañón, which they don't produce a ton of cacao. It's typically only like once a year to get enough amount to like send it out. They're also quite remotely located. So that's one of our hardest ones to like bring. Because of the remote nature of a lot of the places that we work with, if there is something, right, like a like a flood, too much rainfall, suddenly they can't move the cocoa out to the port. Sometimes there's logistical things like that that happen that okay, there's no cocoa. Now with COVID, it's, it's thrown things even a little bit more complicated. So in Colombia, I know there were a lot of issues where folks were not allowed to leave their homes without a government permission that had to be granted in order for you to be able to go out and, and harvest cacao. So I kept hearing from a lot of places weren't able to go out and harvest because they were not legally allowed to leave their homes because the licenses weren't coming in on time. So, you know, you have stories on, on a few places that we work with their cacao is just basically going to rot because, you know, of everything going on. So right now it's been like our Sierra Nevada came back after quite a while of, of not having any. And I brought everything that they produce, uh, which was not a lot. Uh, so sometimes it's just the, the season is not as fruitful as they expected, or sometimes logistics are at Wacos in, in Colombia. They have a unique reason why they are not currently, we, we won't have any of their cacao until next year again, which last time we brought was last year. And they're a very spiritual tribe in, in Santa Marta, in Sierra Nevada. And they've decided because of everything going on that they would rather focus on healing nature because they feel like mother nature is in a lot of stress right now. And they're very much about protecting mother nature and that's their mantra. And so they said, we're not harvesting cacao because our focus needs to be on helping the world. So sometimes you even have like things like that. So it's an ebb and flow of, we have certain regions like our Ecuadorian variety, that that's you know constant they're able to churn out and then we have others where it's like you're gonna get one every year and you better rush to get it because everybody else wants it and uh maybe they didn't have as much as they you know sometimes i put down that i want to buy a certain amount they're like this harvest is horrible we only produced a quarter of what we thought we were going to produce so we have very little cacao so it's it's like any agricultural product it, it has its uh has its moments where a lot of different factors come into play and, and it's not a, as easy as, you know, having a constant stream of, of supply from, from all the places that we work with. Have you ever gone on like a farm visit, you get a recommendation and you go and check it out and like you can't find it or like you do find it and you taste it and you're like, this isn't the same. I've had times where everything is fine and dandy with the samples and then you go out to the farm and everything is fine and dandy. And then when the shipment comes in, you're like, this is different. <laughs> Sometimes what the final product ends up being is like, well, this wasn't quite what it looked like a few weeks ago when we were there. Typically by the time I get to the farm, it's because there's some quality. Sometimes, and I, you know, you have to give them a lot of credit because it, it's the amount of work that goes on in the farms. It's incredibly difficult and labor intensive and everything. And it's hard when you're trying to produce tons and tons of cacao. It's a lot of product to control the quality of. And so if you don't have everything in place, it's sometimes things go awry and the product suffers. For the most part, 
it's good because people, you know, one of the things about working in the commodity market versus working with chocolate makers like us or like Dandelion or anybody like that is part of the incentive of the model is to produce a better cocoa product in order to be able to sell on the specialty market, which pays much more than a commodity cocoa. And so they're very much invested in the success, like our success, because it means that they're also successful, right? And they know that the moment the product goes down in quality, we can't keep buying from them because that's part of the deal, right? Like that's part of what we're buying is quality. I think a a lot of people, uh, you know, who are in it and and trying to cater to the specialty market understand that it's uh, important to maintain that. We we started working with a co-op that does coffee and um, cacao. And so they've been working a few years with a, a coffee company here that's been advising them on how to get their quality up from like the conventional stuff to like a specialty market, fine quality stuff. And so I've come into the project to advise them on now now that they've perfected coffee, I'm helping them get their cocoa to like a, a good level. And what's funny is when they send me samples, the samples now are like pristine. Like there's not like they're sorted perfectly and they only pick the best one. So I've had to tell them, guys, it's fine when it's like a hundred beans, but you have to send me what you're actually producing because when it comes to filling a whole cocoa bean bag and we have to, you know, do 500 kilos or whatever, it has to look like what you're actually, because if you just send me the good stuff that I can't help you, like I can't really tell you what's going on. Some of that, it's like, that's more of like a, on the learning side. But I think for the most part, you know, people have been pretty honest. It's it's a mutual thing. We want great cocoa because at the end, it produces great chocolate. You know, they want to produce a good product because they know that we're paying for the quality and they'd rather go after that than what's been the traditional model of years past. It was like October 2017. You went to something called a food innovation pitch night. What was that and why was it? so important yeah there was like a local like contest for folks in food and beverage was hosted uh and judged by um a few uh execs in the in the food world uh here it's funny because the the consulting background came out and you had to give like a a pitch on your company you know within the initial phases of kind of starting up and what made you unique and what made you viable to continue growing and what made you kind of innovative. And I really didn't think, I think it's one of those things where you're starting something different and you're kind of doubting yourself because that's part of being an entrepreneur is a lot of moments of doubt and, and you know, oh my God, what am I doing? And so I, I won it and I was like very shocked. And actually that coffee company I was mentioning, uh, the owner was one of the, the judges and he's like, I think this reminds me a lot of like us in the early days. And I think it has a lot of potential to grow. And the feedback that I got from the audience afterwards was very encouraging because sometimes as an entrepreneur, you have not sometimes, a lot of times as an entrepreneur, you have days where you're like, oh my God, I, what have I done to myself? And so it was great at a moment where I was trying to like build our, our current space and a lot of things were going awry. And it was just a a really encouraging moment that, you know, I was on the right path, that people understood what I was trying to do, that people saw potential in it, and that they, you know, they saw a future for it. So it was like a great booster in terms of continuing on and and not getting discouraged and 
and having like a, almost a credibility that it was something worth doing, which every so often you need, especially when you're a solopreneur and it's not like you have somebody next to you going, we're doing great. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was, it was a nice uh, validation from, from the local food community. And we were able to get some, some press as a result of that. And, and a lot of people who started to kind of recognize us and be like, oh, that's, that's who that is. And that's what they're doing. Was there a grant involved? No grant, sadly, because yeah, Buddy's always <laughs> lovely to come into uh, when you're building out. But uh, no, it was more um, mentorship. And then we were able to get featured in, in a, a local magazine for um, food and beverage as like the top things coming to Miami type of thing. I think more than more than the financial, which again would have been lovely. But it was more of like the validation that and, and also the connection that I made that evening with people who are here already and that have continued uh, being people that I rely on and can call, you know, as we're growing because they've already been through that. So it was a great thing. A little less than a year later, you wind up opening the space, I think, that you're in now in Little Havana. Did you already have your eyes on that space or were you kind of shopping around for something bigger? Did you already have it like mapped out in your head? It's funny because this seemed like too big of a space. Like I went from this like tiny little kitchen and I've always been not, I don't know if risk averse is like the right way to describe myself, but definitely like financially averse, if that's a thing, but just trying to like, okay, can, can I survive, you know, in a big space and what that entails financially and everything. I liked Little Havana because one of my first wholesale clients is uh, a sukar ice cream that's here in Little Havana. They do Cuban ice cream flavors, quite loved in Miami. Um, they're now in Dallas and they've really, the owner is great. She's an ex-banker. So like I related a lot to her just coming as a corporate dropout. But uh, I love the area because it's quite central. It, it has kind of grown as like a touristy area, but we're centered between downtown to our east. And then we have a, a little bit more of a a traditional like neighborhood on our west so we're kind of like it's i felt like it was the last piece of like central miami that was still within my budget but that also left me within some great areas and the area itself is extremely diverse it's shuffled and although it's little havana it's kind of uh, evolved from different immigrant latin american immigrant groups uh that have taken over so i love the the vibe of it the how latin diverse it was, but there's also a lot of small kind of crafty businesses that are in the area that are not corporate owned, but rather like me, Asukar being one of them. And we have a few like really well-recognized, like one of the best bars in the world is located here. Their bar, you know, guru is like well-recognized. So we, there's a few little like hidden gems in the neighborhood that I, I thought was really great. It's funny because uh, Lara, who is uh, a production manager here, when she came, when I first opened, she came on a tour with her cousin and she was like secretly taking pictures. And we, we laugh a lot at those pictures now because the space looked empty. Like there was so much space. It's not even that big. It's 1250 square feet. But it was just so much space at the time. And there's so many pictures. I have a huge mural on one of the side of the walls and you could see that. And there was not a, not a single thing else. And now we look at it and we're really struggling for space now. So we, we laugh at those pictures when back then I was like, oh my God, can I afford this? 
I'm going to have to find, I tried to find folks who wanted to like split it with me. I'm always concerned about being, just being able to make sure I could pay everything. Yeah. At, at first it seemed like, oh my God, it's huge. Like, I, I don't even know if we're going to be able to like make chocolate. And now we literally, now I've had to, to get like a second place to move stuff over because we, we literally are kind of on top of each other sometimes uh, because uh, be, the cocoa beans take up a ridiculous amount of space. And all the equipment has grown and a lot of a lot of good things have, have happened in the space. But yeah, it's funny to look back at those pictures and be like, wow, it seemed like this like mansion at the time. And now it's like a struggle of like where to put things. So that's been a, an interesting um, journey along the, the last three years. And you guys make like a bunch of different stuff. I mean, you guys do chocolate bars, chocolate covered clusters, there's like brownie points, peanut butter cups, a whole bunch of stuff, the hot chocolate mix, teas. Is there a certain order of production that you have to go through with all those different items to make sure that you have like enough chocolate to do them all? Yeah, it's complicated because, you know, most of the time, if you're if you're just a chocolatier, you know, you, you go out and you buy chocolate and you temper it and you make your stuff and that's great. Here, we have to make the chocolate before we can make anything. We always say we're like masochistic chocolatiers because like it's it's like a seven-day process to turn the cocoa beans into just chocolate, like a chocolate block, like not, not even like a bonbon or anything like that, just chocolate. Like all the process is quite long. So we run out of chocolate. That's it. Like there's not like basically just pack up and go home because there's nothing like we don't buy chocolate. You know, I was I was joked. There's no trips to Costco. Like that's it. There's a lot of planning that goes behind it. And it goes back to sourcing. It's like, okay, do we have cocoa beans? Where can we get cocoa beans from? Typically something I have to buy quite in advance to make sure that we're going to go by the schedule of, of when people are producing things and when things can come to the States and stuff can finally land here. So it starts there, the logistics of just getting cocoa in into here. And then based off that, we always have a, a surplus of, of beans because again, if we run out of beans, that's, that's our livelihood. That's, you know, we don't make anything that doesn't involve the chocolate so or the cocoa so we overproduce our, or meaning we have to keep a very healthy stock of chocolate going so our machines are always on right now we have 510 pounds of chocolate being made uh, at a time with a mini machine but at every second those machines are constantly going and churning and it just goes into the next batch and goes into the next batch because that's our fountain and if we don't have chocolate that's it once we are able to make we make blocks and those blocks will go off. Now we work with salt and straw. So we ship them out like blocks and they make ice cream with it. So sometimes it's just as basic as like just the finished chocolate product goes out to, to folks like that. And then on our side, we do have a retail line. Like you mentioned, we do bonbons. Now for the holidays, we start to make, they're kind of on pause because of the summer, but we start them up uh, now in September again. That is another three-day process. So we have to have the chocolate made. And then from there, we can start to make all our products. We try to work backwards where we know what we want to make and what's available. So for example, like our Peruvian cacao, we haven't had for almost a year now. So that kind of gets put on hold until they come back in stock. But like Sierra Nevada just came in stock for us, bean wise. And so it's like, okay, we know we have this. What can we make with it? What do we want to make with it? And then we work backwards to say, all right, if we need to make, 100 chocolate bars, how much chocolate does that require? And how much beans? And there's a lot of spreadsheets, which I'm very tickled by because of my background. So I love 
I love spreadsheets. I try to imbue that on everyone here that there are your friends. And they help with the chocolate making because there are times where you're like, oh shit, we've run out of tomato and we needed to make tomato. You don't want to have that problem. So yeah, it's a lot of, uh, we, we make a lot of products in terms of seasonality. We switch them up. So like we, right now our limited edition bars are Cafe Aclets, which is like our coffee infused uh, chocolate. And that had to do because the coffee that's coming from the co-op, it was in season now in the summer. And so we were able to get it and we time it with that. And it's like a dance between the seasonality of farms and then also the time of year and, and everything. So a lot of planning. 2019. You took home a few different medals from the Academy of Chocolate Awards. I think it was like uh, three bronze medals. What is the Academy of Chocolate Awards? Like how many people enter? Do you have to like pay to enter or do they just kind of invite people? Were you surprised at the results from that year too as well to be awarded out of so many people that participate? Yeah, so uh, the Academy of uh, Chocolate, I always compare it's like the Oscars of chocolate. <laughs> There's like a, a few organizations so the Academy of Chocolate and then also the Good Food Awards um, that are based here in San Francisco, like those are two of the big kind of legit players in, in the uh, industry that uh, kind of award uh, recognition to products and brands that um, kind of abide by certain rules and, play, you know, taste and all that stuff. So it's a lot of people that enter, it's like a few thousand products that they get within uh, every entry period you pay a, for all of these you pay a minimal fee that just helps with like processing because they rely on a lot of judges and uh, a lot of places to host these things but yeah typically you know you, you send things out and someone out there has the very difficult job of judging chocolate and, and they've you know they, it gets very nerdy like chocolate has become very nerdy where there's you know rigorous analytics and like you know things that you have to test out for in terms of like texture in terms of flavors you know they, uh, there's a uh, super tasters within the world that are like just chocolate wise that are have received training to be able to taste chocolate i'm not kidding you i've been able to to receive training where they can tell you okay what happened here was the fermentation was off and so that's why the chocolate tastes this way they can get it down to like a really granular level so yeah folks uh you know try out the stuff you know you compete in various categories you know from there we've we've been able to to get a few recognitions for our bonbons but also for a few of our bars the cookies and dream one that that you said you like we, we got silver on that one like two years ago and then last year, our peanut butter cups, which are one of my like absolute favorites, uh, was like a, a finalist for the Good Food Award. So a lot of what they try to judge is like flavor and all that stuff, but also sustainability. So you, you're vetted in terms of abiding by making sure that the cocoa you're getting and where you're getting it from is all sustainably sourced. So that's like a big piece that you also have to pass uh, a sustainability factor and basically almost like a traceability that your products have to have in order to be even at the baseline of a recipient of a recognition like that. How did you find out like when they gave you the awards? Like, did you just get an email or a phone call or was there like some sort of ceremony gala thing? It's typically like a, like a frantic, like, Facebook post or like Instagram posts and you're like, oh my God, let me see if we're on it. It's typical, like it's, it's held in, in London typically. In, in British form, it's like, just find it. 
Uh, and so, and so you just kind of like look it up and see if you've made it. That year I did go. They do a very fancy little ceremony out in a very historic hotel in London. And it's very uh, prim and proper. You have to be in your best behavior. And there's lots of chocolate, tons of chocolate, like because everybody brings their chocolate and you can just like, hard to imagine it now, but that we would all pick up chocolate from one tray together. It's like uh, something that uh, it seems like of the past, but um, yeah, lots of chocolate. And, and you know, more than, than the recognition and everything, it's, it's fun because chocolate is a very small world and it's a pretty small industry of like craft makers. So it's, it's always great to like come to these things because you get to meet other people whose products you really love and whose story you really love and, and you get to connect. And what's really cool about chocolate is very similar to like craft beer, or at least my uh, relationship with like folks in the craft beer world is it's a very open of like, we're going to help each other out type of thing. It's like, we're better together than we are like individually. And it's fun to like meet these folks and make these connections and be like, oh, you know, you're having this, what do you think about that? And so it's a, it's, it's great to, um, to meet the other makers and kind of fangirl about other places and people that you really admire. When the pandemic happened, did anything really change for you guys? I mean, I know you said you couldn't go visit the farms in person anymore. Really, it was probably just all right, we can't do our tours within our facility. You're already doing online sales before then. So did it affect you guys too much? It shifted our model a bit because, you know, the way that I started and, and was through wholesale. So I worked with a lot of hotels and breweries and, you know, resorts and, and things like that, that were like an accumulation of a bunch of little places that really helped us be able to buy a good amount of cacao and, and all that stuff. And that was a bulk of our business. And it's in, in March of that year, uh, of last year, I remember we were working with a hotel in the Virgin Islands and Remember, they bought like a lot of chocolate bars. And I remember telling her production manager, like, Lada, like, I think like this might be the last wholesale order we're going to get because things are looking, you know, not great. And and it was true. It was it was like we went from having clients that we would send out lots of chocolate bricks weekly. Um, you know, we had a, a brewery that we were working with that we would send them, you know, 500 pounds of, of cocoa nibs, you know, in, in a given month to just like silence, you know, because obviously they're being affected by everything. Them being not able to open, no hotel guests, no anything means then it affected us on that end. So yeah, our wholesale pretty much went away all last year and has just now started to like, and corporate as well, corporate, at least on like, like for events on site type of situation. So like that was pretty quiet. Actually, it's funny because not funny, but we had a somebody right around March of last year who was hosting a whole conference of Brazilians that were coming to Miami and we had done all the chocolate catering for them. And the poor guy wound up with like hundreds of pieces of of chocolate because no one was able to travel. So he was nice enough. He was like, I'll take it. I'll see what I can do with them basically. But yeah, I mean, that that has now started to come back where it's like people, you know, some of our clients have either recovered financially or they've started to open back up or, you know, they have enough of a client base where they can start to to purchase. But yeah, it's been uh, that that piece of it for not just myself, but 
for other folks that I have uh, friends in the industry has, has been pretty similar on the wholesale side of it being pretty quiet. Um, we were lucky that I had a mixed model because if we were just relying on that, it'd be a different story. Uh, but we, yeah, our tours also shut down. We, I've gone virtual. So we do a lot of tastings online. I, I host every so often, like make your own truffles at home and I can send you the kit to make everything. And then I go on Zoom and we all, I don't drink, but other people drink and make truffles and I, I teach them how to do it. And so we've, we've tried to pivot some of that, but uh, yeah, I mean, our tour experience has been shut down since March of last year. And that was a big part of what brought people in and, you know, people who, who wanted to learn a little bit more about us and experience it live. Um, so that changed, but then chocolate became one of like, I mean, I think that's how you discovered us. Chocolate became the biggest indulgence apparently last year, food wise, it was like the number one pleasure, food pleasure of, uh, of folks last year. And so that was great. Um, you know, we're lucky that unlike uh, a food product that has to be consumed on site, our stuff can be sent out. And so we're, you know, really lucky in that sense that we're not bound by our geographic location. And we can, um, I mean, we've sent stuff to Korea, to all, I mean, Australia. Uh, so the nice thing is we're, we're able to go outside our, our footprint and, and actually ship nationwide and find uh, our customer base outside, which has helped us, you know, continue to, to be in existence. So it's, it's changed and it's grown in some ways. And then you know, diminished in others. And I think that's just part of what's happened over the last 16 months or so. What's next for you guys? Is there thoughts of, you mentioned space is a big thing for you. Is there thoughts of opening a second location or would it be eventually in like a different city or just adding more products? Yeah. So right now my, my philosophy is always your next batch is always an opportunity to do things better. So we're always constantly trying to improve on things. So I think our biggest focus has been now that we have a pretty healthy catalog of things is, okay, how do we improve things? How do we continue to make things better? That's always like a focus of mine. We spent a lot of the summer since it gets a little quieter, focusing on R&D of just how can we process this better that just tastes better, some small changes and things like that always, you know, for the positive. So that's, that's always like a big thing that I think defines us trying to make things a little bit better. You know, I mentioned the holiday market at the at the beginning and how it was one of the biggest disappointments. I'm happy to say that we're actually going to be back on the holiday. We, we actually got accepted. It, uh, it only took a few years, but uh, but actually uh, we'll be at the holiday market this year um, at uh, Columbus Circle, right at the entrance of Central Park, come, kind of come for full circle from, you know, being rejected to suddenly <laughs> being there. So this holiday season starting in November, uh, we'll be there through Christmas. So it'll be a way for people to find us in you know, the New York area. In terms of space, we are looking to expand our current footprint and, and be able to expand our, our retail offerings. And um, I don't know when tours will be back, but that will be a central part of it as being able to offer people uh, a look into how we make things and how we do things. And uh, for us in the immediate future, I mean, that's that's what's happening. But we're, we're gearing up for, even though it's only August, starting to prep for the holiday season and starting to to produce and, and to make everything so we can be ready once the, uh, the holiday time hits. So this question comes from sommelier 
Chris Dillman of FLX Table up in Geneva, New York. He was the previous guest, so I have the guest leave a question for the following guest. He wanted to know, he didn't know you were coming on or anything, but he wanted to know who is the most influential person in your career that you were unable to thank? Oh, wow. Influential person in my career. Yeah, I, I had a, an advisor in college. I remember that he discouraged me from going into my PhD path because he said, if you have something that you know practically you can do and that's what your ultimate goal is, you need to go pursue that. And it sort of got me to think differently about what I should be doing and focus more on on uh, the end goal of where I wanted to be, you know, work-wise and career-wise, as opposed to just focusing on, to be honest, collecting degrees, which which he was uh, very honest about. I think uh, to him, it was Andres Robles, and he's, he's no longer, we lost touch, and he's no longer an advisor at the college, at the university, but uh, it was a big, I think, turning point for me where I started to think more about in terms of my own journey and career, what I was actually after and what was important and how I, what I could do to get there. And it was, uh, he actually also gave me my first consulting job out of college when I couldn't find a job. And, and that uh, kind of set the entrepreneurial path also forward as an adult. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything, no boundaries on it. So uh, is everyone a, an entrepreneur or is it just... It could be anything from a sommelier, it could be a chef, a restaurant owner, but it'll be somebody somehow relating to the hospitality food industry. But it, it could be anything that you want to ask. Sure. I, I would say if you could give your younger self an advice of something you know now, what would you tell them? So we have a few more questions for you. We ask these to pretty much everybody who comes on the podcast. So everybody who's listening gets kind of like a compare and contrast across all the episodes. What's the one thing that if it breaks in your facility that you're not going to try and fix yourself, you're going to call somebody to, to come fix it? Oh, my God. Everything breaks here all the time. So when you own a chocolate factory, you could ask anybody in the industry, everything, something's always broken. I am pretty handy. I, I think because of being analytical, I, I, I've changed motors, changed electricals, I've changed floors, I've changed toilet parts. Like I'm just, I've done like pretty much everything. The one thing that scares me is electricity. And I the, I think my biggest strength is knowing what I'm bad at, electrical. I, I will not touch a panel past like flipping the breaker on because I'm well aware how complex that is. And my electrician's getting a call the second that happens. Machine-wise, I'll tinker with it all the time. But yeah, not electrical. What's a restaurant that you'd recommend in Miami? Somebody's, you know, gets stuck at Miami airport, like it's canceled or whatever. They hit you up to, hey, you know, where should I eat? I recently went out uh, for the first time to a place called Mamey. And more so than the restaurant, it's the chef, Chef Niven Patel. He uh, he does like farm to table cuisine. He only he owns his own farm uh, down south. And so a lot of the stuff he serves comes off what's in season on his farm. His first restaurant was more of like Indian food, but kind of localized with the fruits and vegetables that we have here that it's called ghee that place is fantastic and then mameus is kind of newest one amazing cuisine anything that that he does you can't go wrong and so highly recommend following over to those places. also great cocktails there's a vibrant cocktail scene here in miami so if you're into that definitely get one of those 
bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, that place you want to go to but haven't been, place you want to eat that you haven't been? Ooh, uh, bucket list destination. My Japan. Whenever this is over, that's that's one place that I would love to. Tokyo or Kyoto or? I think it's one of those places I would love to spend a good amount of time uh, to make it worthwhile. And uh, yeah, visit the, the Tokyo, uh, but also visit some of the outskirts as well. But yeah, that's one of my, my big dreams. Any uh, bucket list restaurants or anything? French Laundry. Craziest thing you've seen happen in your facility over the years? Craziest thing. Oh, wow. It's like, where to start? <laughs> so, so we had, uh, and, and actually I'm, I'm staring at it right now because we turned it into a magnet to, uh, I, I have a, in a, in a loving, uh, way. I like to, we shame each other. If anybody drops, cause it takes so much time to make chocolate. So if anybody drops chocolate on the floor, we toss it out. But if you've dropped a substantial amount of chocolate, you're getting a picture with it and it's going on the fridge because, and I've done it too. So I've had pictures of me, uh, taken. But one of the first, uh, like maybe two weeks in, a new holiday worker who ended up being like a, a permanent person, she, I was filming her like, you know, to get the shot for like social media. And she let go of the melanger, which was, had a hundred pounds of chocolate in it at the time. So when you rewatch the video, all you see is the machine fall. And I just like screech. And there's a hundred pounds of chocolate floating into the kitchen. That was not a fun cleanup experience and then she was also it's funny because we, we've become friends uh she was so panicked she thought i was gonna fire her and so she like ran away almost <laughs> like thinking like i was gonna but it, it ended up being like we were very short on chocolate at the time and it was like around i think like november like the time when you like every chocolate is like necessary and it was like oh my god finally we have 100 pounds that's coming out of the machine and, and it's all like every like every bit of that chocolate went on all over the floor and it was a nightmare to like clean it and to make matters worse i was an idiot and i was was like oh my god before it solidifies let's grab it so we could like toss it out and in my panic moment i tried to wash the bowl and i ended up clogging the drain because drains cannot take that much chocolate and it was just a not a fun experience but one that we can now laugh at and so we've turned her into a magnet and, and so she's on right now on the on the board here but that was one of the one of those like uh, I tell people. So only one other person has ever dropped that much chalk on the floor. Please don't be that person. So it's become like a cautionary tale. How do you clean up chocolate? Like, is it easier to just let it solidify and harden, and then kind of almost like scrape it off the floor, or is it mop bucket? Ninety percent of making chocolate is cleaning. The amount of cleaning that has to happen, it's just, it's constant. Chocolate and water, it's like, you know, when you sprinkle water on flour and it becomes gummy, uh, like a paste, the same thing happens with chocolate. So sometimes water, if you add water, it becomes almost like, it almost solidifies and becomes like this, uh, it, we call it seizes, but it basically like, kind of like the flour example. So we actually, for a kitchen, almost have to like flood it with really hot water in order to like get all the the chocolate off it. So it has to be like a, we actually in, in Miami, we use something called a Cuban mop, which is basically like a stick with a, with a cloth around it. And it's very popular here. Uh, but with really hot water steaming it, we actually have a heat gun, like a massive heat gun from like Home Depot. And we, we turn that on and it's the easiest way to like get the chocolate because once it solidifies, it's really, we, we scrape it off with like a scraper, but typically we have to like remelt it down with like a heat gun 
And that's usually your easiest way to apply heat to it because it, yeah, it gets on everything. And cocoa, cocoa stains like crazy too. So even before it gets made, like chocolate just stains everything. And so you constantly, it's like you clean and then it's like five minutes later, it's like, it's very good. It's, it's a constant. Food or drink guilty pleasure. I know you say you don't drink. So is there a food guilty pleasure that it's just, you know, something at the grocery store that isn't chocolate that you really gravitate towards? And you're just like, I know this is bad for me. And I know it's down that aisle, but I just can't resist. Is there anything like that? Well, I do drink. Um, I, I'm a sucker. And now during the pandemic, that going out to, to you know, a place within an option, learn how to make like cocktails at home. But like a really well-made margarita is like, fantastic just with like real lime juice and good tequila and and everything i do have like the airport like chocolate like every so often where i'm just like i love m&ms like i know they're not chocolate but i'm not gonna lie like i really like m&ms and it's like a once a year thing where it's like trap at the airport and you're like like all right fine but like peanut m&ms okay i was gonna ask is it the peanut the plain or the peanut butter that or like the crispy ones i don't even know what's in it it's supposed to be pretzel, I think. I don't know. I like salty and sweet. Like I love like crunchy and sweet and like salty and all that combo. So like that. And I think it's just it's a childhood thing. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I do enjoy MMs. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, scene, episode that stood out to you? Or if you weren't, was there anybody who was like a culinary kind of influencer, TV personality that kind of stood out to you when you first started getting into making chocolate and getting up to where you are now? Yeah, no, I, I, I really love this, uh, this show. You know, there's a lot to pick from. He did, the episode on Columbia was just fantastic because it highlighted a lot of diversity. But I will say his chocolate episode that he goes out to Peru, Eric Ribeiro, is is excellent. Uh, and even though it's actually funny because uh, the origin he goes to visit is the origin that, that we buy from, from Marañón. But I, he broke down, what you know, why does a chocolate bar cost $8? ten dollars or whatever and he breaks it down for people to understand and a lot of people who have come through the door and that i have conversations with i've like you know i saw that episode from anthony bourdain and like it got me into chocolate or like i understood or when i come here now i understand this and uh so on on the from us as a business i think it you know from somebody as influential as that and somebody who just was able to communicate things in such a clear way as he did and in a personal way I think it really opened up what chocolate can be and what it should be for a lot of folks and and why chocolate is evolving into what it's becoming and I think that was like a really awesome episode he did a great job in bringing that to the regular person at home who doesn't make chocolate for a living where can people find you social media website reservations plug anything everything yeah, you can find us on, on Instagram, Facebook. And then if you are in the Miami market, we have our retail shop here in Little Havana, right on 8th Street. You can come visit us, have a great Cuban sandwich, then some Cuban ice cream experience out of it. It's it's one of the must when you come down here to Miami to visit the, the neighborhood. And then if you're in New York, anywhere from November to December, come visit us at the Holiday Market in Central Park. I'm sure you'll announce when you guys are able to do tours again. You can order online too as well. So check out the website and everything. Yeah, I don't know when we'll make it back down to the Miami area. It was a couple of years ago when we first came, but definitely we'll be coming in for a tour and seeing you guys again. But 
Love the products. I haven't tried the peanut butter cups, so definitely that'll probably be next on our list. But this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on, just kind of giving a background into the world of bean-to-bar chocolate, which I think is something that people maybe run up against here and there, but don't fully understand like what all goes into it and just how organized you have to be and how labor-intensive it really is. And they just see the finished product where it's like, oh, it's this chocolate bar. It's like there's a way more that goes into it than you know you could even understand. You know, thank you for inviting me and, and for highlighting it. Uh, I'm a total chocolate nerd, so I love sharing uh, what we do. And a, a lot of people don't realize where chocolate comes from. So it's nice, you know, to share that and to realize what goes on behind a, a chocolate bar. And not only for us, but the people that come before us, you know, on the farm level. So hopefully people have listened to it next time they, they break open a, a chocolate. Uh, they think about all that. And I think that's a great piece to share. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Open invitation to anybody who comes on the podcast to return whenever they have something, new product to plug or, or whatever. But yeah, stay in touch. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll be seeing you sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Thank you, Ray. Thanks again to Carolina for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her morning to come on. So it was an awesome conversation. So glad that we were able to finally kind of get it scheduled. She's somebody I wanted to have on the podcast for a while now, just because I really like her stuff. And I think it's an interesting story and just kind of an interesting concept, the whole bean to bar kind of chocolate movement that started, you know, like she mentioned, kind of 2013, 2015 was kind of really when it started to blow up. And, you know, now there's a bunch of different players in the space and everything, but I think she's doing amazing stuff down there. And and it's amazing products and they can ship them right to your front door. So you don't even have to go down to Miami to try it. But if you are in Miami, definitely check out their spot. They got the retail shop up front, kind of doing tours of the production facility in the back too as well. So follow them on Instagram at Exquisito Chocolates. Also follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, SpoonMob1 on both those sites. Website, SpoonMob.com. Feel free to send in questions, comments, feedback through the portal on the website, on the main page there, or you can email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. Also, check out past episodes of the podcast. So chefs and guests come out every Thursday. You know, we've had a few different chefs on. Chef Carlos over at the Market Italian Village. We've had sommelier Chris Dillman on. Owner Joe Gulati of Commune here in Columbus, Ohio, which is one of our favorite restaurants. So check those out. Go back through the feed. We're in like the 20s. I think we've done 20, 20 something interviews with chefs, restaurant owners, sommeliers, chocolatiers, just people within the food industry that we really enjoy what they do. So kind of want to, you know, have them on and highlight it and share their story and, and why we kind of love all these people that we've had on and, and everything that they're doing. So we're going to continue to do that, continue to release episodes every Thursday. So check all the backlog out. Make sure to also check out Parts Down Known. That comes out on Wednesdays. That's me and Ben rewatching the Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown series. We're in the middle of season six, so you can kind of watch along with us. Took a few weeks off, just we had some scheduling, some vacations and stuff like that, but now we're back in full swing. So get caught up on that if you're not. All you have to do is subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. We're on all of them. You don't have to subscribe to multiple feeds or anything like that. It's all under the Spoon Mob feed. So just give us a follow, subscribe on whatever your preferred platform of choice is. That's about it. So appreciate everybody listening, helping spread the word, continue to do so. Thankful to all our listeners and anybody who's new, um, who's joined us in the last few weeks too as well. Welcome aboard. Hopefully you guys are enjoying everything that we're doing and we're going to keep doing it. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.